this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. On Tamsin and Dan, read the paper January 29th. Woo! Getting toward the end of January. 2023. Yes. Uh, end of January, so I have to say happy birthday to my sister, Sarah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a big one. Mm-hmm. And um, happy birthday to my brother, Steed. Oh. A big one, too? Well, everyone's a big one at his age. Oh, that's a nice I, I kind of <laughs> led you into that. I know, I know, I know. All right, good, good, good. Yeah, the 29th. Um, the year is hopping along. It is hopping along. Well, Speaking of hopping. Yeah, what? You got a good time with your grandson yesterday, huh? I, I did. Well, let me get to my grandson right away. Here's something that the paper really, uh, this startled me. Maybe you knew this. And... According to the Stanford Center on Longevity, today's five-year-olds in the United States have a greater than 50% chance of living to 100 years old. I guess that makes sense. It, well, yeah, it I might mean, make sense. There seem to be... Let me, let me bring it down. Everybody to we know has been living to their 90s. Well, that's not everybody we know, no. But, but uh, everybody in their 90s has been living to their 90s, yeah. But, 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 Hazi, Pepper who are under five, so it's probably even better for them, are likely to live to be 100 years old. That's a long time. I mean, that's, that's it set me back. I mean, I didn't. I certainly wasn't yeah. assuming that. Right. I'm not disputing it, okay. but it kind of uh, makes an impression. It makes an impression. And the, what the article is about is not so much that, because it's just an estimate, but what does this mean for the way people live their lives and, and particularly live their work lives? Uh, really, really going to need those self-driving cars. Yes, <laughs> you are, but that's not. Yes, but 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 here's the thing. No, I, well, my point is, people should have better and better lives at those later ages. Well, that's be, the thing because of all the technology. Yes. So, but yes, but also their health. Here's the thing: you can't have, according to this, which makes some sense too. If everyone, if a lot of people are living to a hundred, okay. The idea of everybody retires when they're 62, 64, 65 uh, doesn't work. Doesn't work. Right. Doesn't work by Somebody's got to tell the French. <laughs> well, okay. the French, they, they do mention the French. They break it to the French people. They do mention the French have the lowest retirement age, but the, the French are raising their retirement age. Oh, they are? They okay. are. So and, and they're people, catching on. And people are, uh, are objecting to that in France. Right, they're of raising. Course, of course, of course, they are. Yes, they're They've raising got baguettes to eat. Yes, yeah. I'll, I'll give you the, the life expectancy in France. By the way, is is eighty two. What do you think it is in the U.S.? I have no idea. Seventy seven. It's lower than in France. How do you like that? Um, That's very interesting. Yes, the retirement age in France is uh, sixty two, and uh, they want to raise it to sixty four by twenty thirty, and people are objecting. Uh, and they want to raise it because of ballooning social welfare costs. Uh, I think France is fairly described as socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's just symptomatic. I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to think about. And think about it. the idea of 100 versus 65. That's 35 years. Right. And if you if the expectation is people are going to live to 100 and in fact be highly functioning for a fair bit of that time, why retiring at 65? Uh, and how are those people going to be supported if they're not working for the next 35 years? This is uh, what everyone has to work their way through. Uh, it's well, not, but you there's have more to expand to it. your idea of what 65-year-olds can do. Yes. And, and I think what 80-year-olds can do. Right. We should have expanded that already. 
But we haven't. I mean, I can tell you, being in that age group or even a little bit older, you can chime in with your own experience. People look at you when you're that age and they say, well, this guy, you know, can't expect much here. I, I hope he's comfortable. Uh, and uh, Well, in, in many occupations, that would be true. Yeah. That's why I'm saying you have to figure out mm-hmm. what is a good occupation for older people. Right. And you have to, well, as the article goes on to say, here's one person says that life should be nonlinear. Uh, you know, the idea of saying that first you go to school, then you go to work, then you retire, that rigid framework doesn't work. What you have to do if you're going to live that long and be relatively healthy, then there has to be upskilling, reskilling, the notion of having several careers, not just a matter of, because you do get tired you're, you're of doing talking, something 40 years. You're yeah. talking to me yeah. like this is a new idea. This is, well, no, I'm, it's, it's new to me. Know? Who do you know got a master's in art history in her 50s? Okay. Well, you have to get another master's, Thames, and that's, that's my point. Sure. No, no, no. You're, you're, no. You're, you're, not, you're looking one, at 60 One like, re-entry was enough. No, no, no. But if, with this uh, kind of age thing, it's, no. it's more. It's more. You know, you have, and look, I'm not, I don't want to make this personal. I'm just saying more generally speaking, you're talking about changing the paradigm in a very fundamental way. And I'm and I'm saying the paradigm has already changed. It, it's changing. It's not like I'm some weird exception. Yeah. You know, people like me are already figuring that out. And uh, but how many going people, back. But you, but you did this some years ago. How many people, people are going to do that when they're 70? That's what they're no, saying no, here. No, 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 you don't, Go no. Go get your master's no, when you're 75. No, no, they're not saying that, okay? Uh, they are. They're not saying that. No, why not? No, because it makes sense to do something like I did. Yeah. You know, you're working... At X yeah. till a certain point, and then and go back while you still have some juices flowing. Well, but you okay? see, but that's the fundamental and, thing. When you say still have the juicing flowing, they're saying that the juices are flowing for a longer period of no, time. No, 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 you need no, more no, no, of no, no. a reset. No but, one is saying that we're all the same at forty as we are at eighty. That's okay? what these people are no, saying. No, they are that's not where we're saying going. that. That's what Hazi is going no, to be like. No, only stupid people are saying that. Oh, what you have okay. to figure out is what's logical. Yeah. What's a what's a good use of those people and their resources as they are yes, in that case. Here's the problem. There's an our view. You're looking at it in a very simplistic way. So you're gonna poo poo it and it's not gonna No, work. I'm but I'm telling you our view, my view of what it is to be seventy 75, 80, is informed by my grandparents, my parents, my grandparents. And, you know, I, I can't I can't divorce myself from that my way of thinking. And what this reminds you of, being forward thinking as opposed to backward thinking, you say, no, 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 that paradigm doesn't work at all. Well, explain. Your grandfather retired. At 65. Sold his business. Right. And moved to Florida. Right. And never worked again. Exactly okay. right. Yeah, that was a while ago, Dan. Right. Yeah. That was 50 I years ago. I understand, but it's still in my ago. mind's eye. My point is, it's yeah, very... But did different. you do that? No. no. Did I do that? No. No, but, 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 but we have to... I think we have to push further in that direction. I'm <laughs> looking <it>. forward. <laughs> I'm telling you. Fine, yeah. you do that. Yeah. Okay, you do that. Yeah. But again, you do it in a way that, that makes sense. Uh, you do it in a way that's effective. Right. Not say, okay, now you're... Uh, 75, let's think about going back to school. For some people, that's going to be great, and that's going to be certainly possible. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the the point is, I think the article probably may, you, you just don't uh, stop at any particular point. You don't uh, say, okay, I've got my education. I'm 22. I've got my education. Yeah. That's it. Right. No, that's not it. You can be, 
uh, again, you can uh, well, the article reinvent goes even, yourself. Goes goes further times. even in terms of coming, you know, yeah, in, I, I, enforcing age discrimination laws so that uh, companies will hire people in their 70s. And, 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 right, right. And that's fine. Yeah. I'm interested in the legality of it. I love legal <laughs> issues, as you know. But really what's fundamentally important is, yeah. you know, what is, what are effective, interesting, fulfilling yeah. jobs yeah. for people as they do get older? Yeah. And of course, just because you're living longer and want to have a job doesn't mean you don't want to play with the grandchildren. Right. So factors will come in that uh, it's not necessarily going to be 40 hours a week, oh, et, sure. et cetera. Okay. It will have to work. There, you know, I believe that all these things can, all these problems can be solved. All right. I think if we think hard, yeah. there are, you know, uh, plenty of jobs that, uh, you know, seventy-year-olds are going to have a ball doing, yeah. and uh, twenty-five or thirty-year-olds are saying, "Yeah, not so much," yeah. and that will work out. Yeah, right. Okay, well. but I'm not saying this is not to say that uh, I think everyone has or will succeed beautifully at whatever um, demanding job they had when they were forty-two yeah. at eighty-two. All right, okay? I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, That's why we're talking about you know upskilling and reskilling. But I do think uh, you know. Uh, I have uh, always enjoyed working. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I delight in the idea that I could be working for many more years. All right. All right. Good. All right. So, um, well, talking about working now, there is an article. uh, It's really an interview in the Times Magazine section with a fellow named Cal Newport, who I guess is some kind of expert in... uh, the workplace. It sounds like he's, uh, he's a, a Georgetown, at Georgetown. A Georgetown computer science professor and best-selling author of Deep Work, A World Without Email, and Digital Minimalism. He's currently writing a book called Slow Productivity. And let me, I'll get to what that means. It, it, the, the conversation starts with uh, the interviewer saying to him, look, you know, I speak to a lot of people who say they have trouble focusing when they're in front of their computers, they have trouble getting working, getting work done, writing, whatever, because there is emails coming in. They have to open a tab every few minutes. Uh, what's your advice? And he says, yeah, that is the problem. You cannot multitask. There's no such thing as multitasking. It is a myth. Uh, sometimes you have to juggle several things within a certain period of time. But it's not because you're multitasking in an effective way, because you have to do what you have to do. But those kind of burdens detract from your effectiveness in the workplace. He also mentions that multitasking doesn't just mean uh, working on several projects. Right. Uh, you can't multitask within one project. If you, you're working on a project even and you stop to read an email or have a meeting about that project that's still multitasking right okay so he's talking somewhat about really narrowing uh your focus um, your focus focus, yeah you know what you're actually keeping a strict focus he's as as if you're sitting in the dental chair Right. And keeping all your energies, well, you can't right. do anything in the dentist. When the dentist is working on your cavities, what are you, you going to do? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're you're stuck. You're not checking your email. You're not doing this. Right, thing. exactly. Right, but he says, you know, that actually has a terribly negative effect on what he calls slow productivity. Now, 
he says, look, there's productivity measured in a conventional sense, the way it's measured now, which is how many messages are you handling? How many clicks are you doing? How many orders are you placing? How many plates are you spinning, really, in, in a digital way? And he says, that's a very crude way and, and really an inappropriate way in his mind of measuring true productivity. But it's the only way people know how to measure productivity. So there's a lot of work that in his mind is just performative. You're there, you're making clicks, you're reaching, you're responding to people's emails, you're constantly, your manager is constantly checking in so with X and a, Y. Illusion. It's, it's an illusion of, of productivity, productivity. It, but it's just plate spinning. Well, he refers to something called knowledge work. Yes. Which I guess means sort of white collar work. Yeah, yeah it's white collar work. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's work, you know, it's like law and publishing and things like that. Um, Where now, there's no, you know, it's one thing to catch, to calculate how many um, widgets right. somebody on the you know assembly line assembly line uh, makes right. per hour it's another thing to try to um, i guess articulate or quantify how much progress anybody has made right. in a particular right i don't know lawsuit <laughs> or um, no but yeah. that's absolutely right i yeah. mean and then and there's two problems in that. One is he uses the example of John McPhee, the author, who we know lives in Princeton. And he, he, he says the example that he uses is that, you know, he was going to, he was working at an article for the New John Yorker. John McPhee. Yeah. Had a very challenging piece he was working on. Yeah. So he, uh, he got into his backyard. They said he laid out on the picnic table for, for two, two weeks, weeks, literally. And he worked it all out. And he said, if you were measuring productivity in the conventional way, He's terribly unproductive, but if you measure it in, in a meaningful way, he was then able to write this piece, and that's what he calls slow productivity. Um, but there's no the way we manage people Wheels now. Wheels are turning. Yeah, the way we manage people now, we don't allow for that. This brings me back to Inspector Gamache. Yeah, Scott, I'm listening. Okay, because often in the books, yeah, all right, this is the uh, you know the uh, storybook. Um, Detective right. in Canada, in the uh, Louise Penny books. Right. So often, at some point, there's somebody screaming about how Gamache is not doing anything. Right. Look at him; he's just standing there. He's just sitting there. He's just walking around, and he's these terrible things are happening. He's not doing anything. And uh, a loyal sidekick or somebody will say, "He's thinking." Yeah. Yeah. You know? And he will stop. And take a breath and go out and do something. And, you know, nine times out of ten, perhaps ten out of ten, yeah. he comes back with a solution. Yeah. Well, we, we would... But, but that's, I guess, but, real big. No, no, but we talk, talk about, if you recall, Asa Roundtree, who's a senior lawyer at work with DevVoice, he would say, you know, clients wonder if I'm billing X time for something. What are you doing? He said, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Yeah. Right? I'm not writing anything. I can't give you the memo, the email. Well, in his day, it was an email. That the communication that reflects anything in a tangible way, but it's that kind of peace and quiet and focus that allows me to give you the work product that ultimately you're really paying for. The other thing is that a lot of the work is group work, and to measure people's productivity on an individual basis is not satisfactory, not highly meaningful, because you're working as a group, and the product has to reflect the collaboration of all these various people. Um, so again, the idea about responding to emails and uh, middle management sort of pushing people to uh, put tags on things is not really productive. And, of course, he, he's given the question near the end, you know, 
isn't this too late? Isn't the, uh, you know, the toothpaste out of the tube? Uh, and people are, so, you know, the implication is and people are going to want to work from home, work individually, work digitally. So well, we can't do this. He says, no, I don't look at it that way. The way I look at it is there have been a lot of developments, including technological developments. But it's akin to when you, people invented the motor car. It's great that people could ride around. There were some roads, but we soon realized you needed rules of the road. You needed traffic signals. You needed red lights. And we just haven't figured out what those rules of the road are here right. to make the most out of this and to put people in a way that they can actually be productive. Right, yeah. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, because think, it's tricky. Because yeah. how do you look at somebody? I mean, we want to know, you know, uh, that you're getting value for your money. How do you look at a, and you know, a subordinate or a superior yeah. who's thinking and right. know that they're thinking <laughs> and not just... You know, snoozing. Well, one of the things, he's, he's pointing the finger at the whole idea of middle management. He said managers, you know, often know less about what these people are doing than the people who are doing it. And it's one thing, again, if the managers are working in an industrial plant and they know how to assemble an engine and they can look at what the individual uh, people are doing in terms of installing components in the engine and critically evaluate it. But if you're talking about publishing a law or something like that, they, they don't know. The managers don't know if they're just, quote, managers. And maybe you have too much in the way of that kind of management. I don't know. It's uh, provocative. I guess we'll, Hazi will get to experience that. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's, it depends on how you define manager. Yeah. Because sometimes you need somebody who's above the fray. Yeah. Who can see sure. what you're really But they need a deep how, understanding. How of, you put the pieces together. Right. They need a deep understanding, a sophisticated perspective on what you're trying to accomplish. All right. And that's so, often missing. So I don't right. know what we got out of that article, except stay away. No, no, no. I got quite a lot of it. Look, I, I, I don't want to reflect too specifically on my own law firm and law, but this relates very specifically, very directly to how you do work and how you bill for work. Mm-hmm. And that's been debated uh, internally and with clients for years and years and years and will continue to be debated. Uh, you know, what's the better mousetrap? Do you bill someone by the hour or do you bill someone for the actual product? Yeah. Uh, it gets into all kinds of things. Okay, so... Um, Football, there is football today. It's starting right now. There are two championship games. Um, and uh, one of the teams, you know, San Francisco 49ers, are playing the Eagles. I'll just right. say, I'll put myself in the line here. You're not going to – I will root for the Eagles. I'm, I'm rooting – the Eagles going to handle the 49ers. I'm going to put really? myself out there, yeah. But the big thing don't was you, – Don't you find that awkward, being a Giants fan no. rooting for the Eagles? I call them as I see them, honey. I'm sure you're not uh, – okay. when there's money at stake, when you got to bet, you got to bet. <laughs> but but – the thing with the, the 49ers is they're playing this rookie quarterback. Everybody's amazed. His name is Brock Purdy. He was the last player taken in last year's draft. He was not considered a hot property. I know. And they've Mr. won 12 games in a row. Mr. Inconsequential. Mr. Irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant. Yes. Yeah, right. If they thought about it, Mr. Inconsequential would have been better. But Mr. Irrelevant <laughs> is the, they're football players. Sorry. Okay. okay. But here's the thing. So how do they succeed in this? You know, how is it that they're succeeding with Brock Purdy? Did the 49ers find somebody at the end of the draft who was a genius, you know, at playing quarterback? Right. And no one else saw it. And what the Times has figured out, this fellow Mark Tenier, who writes for football for them in, on the rare occasions with some Times deems to write about football, is that, in fact, no, uh, Brock Purdy is not, as he would put, that, that consequential or not that relevant. What the 49ers do and what the successful teams are doing these days is they 
don't throw the ball downfield, which is how quarterbacks often become famous. And you see in the highlights, they have these wonderfully long passes that go for touchdowns. He throws little short passes to people who catch the ball and then run after they catch it. It's called yards after catch. It's a statistic. So why didn't somebody just stop them? Well, they can't stop them because the team has been set up where they have a great set of receivers who have the ability to gain yards after the catch. Not they every can't receiver, if somebody stops them. They can't, they can't stop them because they're that good. Their names If they're right are, there, they can stop them. You, can't, you haven't watched enough football, apparently. Okay. Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle. That, that, that's where they've invested their money in the salary cap. Receivers who can turn a short pass into a large gain. That's where the NFL is right now. Are you now. sure they're not doing something tricky, like having also a good uh, pass receiver out far? So yes, they're doing throwing to either guy. Yes, they're doing that too. Okay, well, okay. All, right. Okay. all right. I knew there was There's, more. I'm breaking to it down it. for you. There is a little more to it, but the point is, it, it it doesn't. It's not like they have the genius quarterback who's who's throwing these beautiful uh, airtight passes down the field. They're not doing that. They say he's almost like a point guard in basketball. Making mm-hmm. these little flips, these little passes to these guys who are just taking it and then turning a five-yard pass into a 14-yard game. And statistically, the 49ers are the leaders in this. Uh, and they've invested their money in the salary cap uh, into these kind of star receivers. As has, frankly, the other teams who are in the final four here. Kansas City and uh, Philadelphia. And um, who's that other team? Um, oh, yeah. Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati would be the one who throws the ball downfield a little bit more with Joe Burrow, the quarterback. But, but generally, the way the league is going is, and this is, you know, it's over some time, but now we're in an extreme set, is these very talented receivers with the, the ability to turn a short pass into a long game. But you game. say that's not going to work today. I didn't say it's not going to work today. It's just they're playing a better team. You, you can have a system that, that's well thought out and, it, and it's effective, mm-hmm. but there is such a thing as a better team. And the better, and frankly, the Eagles do the same thing mm-hmm. in terms of their quarterback. Um, and their quarterback is, uh, on top of that, is an effective runner himself. So I, I don't, you don't want to take me too deeply into the game so much. But it is interesting because when you know the, it's always been in the in the NFL. They say what you need more than anything is the franchise quarterback. Franchise quarterback, you can't get anywhere without the franchise quarterback. They're doing this with Brock Purdy. I am telling you right now, Brock Purdy is not a quote franchise quarterback right this is how they're doing it okay they're investing in these kind of receivers and you're going to see it uh, it's gotten them this far and uh, then they'll play off tomorrow but uh it's still a good season but not for them. too shabby no not too shabby at all all right so here's something about airline travel all right so the problem with airline travel environmentally has been carbon emissions all right okay when you, you fly with jet fuel you you uh the jets leave uh, a whole lot of problematic carbon emissions. They burn all this fuel. Well, that's what the fuel does, though. The fuel emits carbon. Okay. And uh, that's a terrible environmental problem. So what the airlines have done is they have um, sort of signed on to what's called a net zero carbon emission standard, which will be enforced in 2050. Okay. So that will be, and let me do some math here, in like 22 years, uh, no, more than that, 27 no, years. Yeah. I mean, Hazi still won't be 30. But my, my point is this, <laughs> but, but he'll be talking about it. My point is that it's, it's not around the corner, but it's coming. 
And the question is, how are they possibly going to do that? Well, uh, the implication of the article is they're not going to do that. But but it does discuss what they might be uh, using to try to get there. And the alternatives that are available to them are kind of interesting. But the number one alternative, as we were discussing before, is using a biofuel that is derived from used cooking oil, which, as you pointed out to me, is what you get when McDonald's makes french fries, is uh, the used cooking oil that's generated there uh, fits the bill. And it's uh, and they're using it now. You asked me which airlines are using it. JetBlue and United are both using it. Um, now, in particular... <laughs> I'm just thinking, thank goodness they're not offering food with their flights anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we know they're they're not using it for that. Well, they, 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 I guess they're using it for the fuel. Well, they get it going. If, if you get on a yeah. flight where they're giving you French fries, free French fries, you'll understand what's going on. Okay, so <laughs> they the, could supply their own. They, they could be. They're making yeah. French fries. They could. We maybe, got to pick up speed. You know, maybe that's kind of a, a nice, uh, you know, um, synergy there for hmm. future. You know, business investments within the airline, or right? you might hear a, see a McDonald's airlines. You know, you know, fly Wendy's to California. No, I, don't I think know. you'd see, uh, you know, JetBlue Fry Babies or something. Something like that. So naturally, it's California, which is the lead in this. So it's United and uh, JetBlue are flying in and out of California using some percentage of this biofuel. Um, and yet, the uh, they're working on using it more and more, but it's a relatively small percentage. It's like one-tenth of one percent of their total fuel supply. Uh, there's a thought, aspirational... One-tenth of one percent, yes. I, I w- wouldn't even go with relatively on that. I would go on small percentage. Small percentage. It takes a lot of french fries to fly a jet plane, honey. Okay? See, this is... You know what's going to happen. No, okay? what's going to happen? Well, remember we were talking before about people selling their urine. Yes. For, very, for various yeah, uses, yeah, right? That, they don't use that for or, jet and, fuel. And right. So... Now they're also going to be able to sell their cooking oil. Yeah, I, sure. I assume that most of the cooking oil they're buying is from, you know, more commercial industrial situations. Yeah. But we'll, you know, we'll, our future houses will have all these sort of um, recycling, cool. yeah, cool. reuse and recycle capabilities oil, yeah. that are just going to make our, our little blue jug of used cans, yeah. you know. Uh, seem inconsequential. Or maybe when you go to the airport, you take a jug of cooking oil with you, and that's the way you pay for your flight. Huh? How about that? Uh, so maybe it's how you pay for your headphones. Or and, so, I don't my, think it's good enough. The hope is that in a it's few years, cheap. cooking oil will account for ten percent of we'll the fuel. We'll be climbing up. We'll be ten percent before you get on the plane. Yeah. You'll be uh, dumping your oil. In the tank Look, on the way to your seats. You're just going to have new respect. When you see someone munching on french fries next to you on JetBlue, you'll understand why. It's it's not because... Doing a service. Exactly right. You know. Keeping the flight going. Right. So their hope is that um, biofuel like that will count for 10% but, uh, of jet fuel in a few years. But it's still not enough. Um, and it's because it's expensive, frankly. It's two or three times the cost of jet fuel. Uh, standard jet fuel. So the other thoughts are um, hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And hydrogen is a little tricky because you got to freeze it. But the... Hydrogen uh, sounds expensive to me. Everything's expensive compared right. to what they're doing now. But uh, I don't think it's terribly expensive. It's just challenging. There's a lot of infrastructure there. and It, it can blow up on you. It can blow up. It has that. That's a negative. But... Uh, and they have some complicated possibilities too. 
Uh, one that's a little easier to understand is electric. You could have electric airplanes. Think about that. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, comes down to battery life, as it always does mm-hmm. when you're talking about electric vehicles. And apparently, you can right now, you can use electric power to uh, take a short flight. There are short flights done with electric power, mm-hmm. which is something Bryce might be interested in. Um, and uh, there is more progress being made. So uh, Norway... Uh, well, according to uh, Avenue, the Norwegian airport, by 2040, Norway has legislated that any domestic flight will be electric power. 2040. Okay, that's coming up. Mm-hmm. That's ambitious. Yeah. And uh, how's he will be 20 something? But uh, it's coming, but they got to come up with something because uh, I don't, it feels like they haven't found the thing yet. And uh, maybe it means people have to stop flying. But, you know, there always used to be uh, this idea that people say there's carbon offset, that they're negotiating, you know, it's too hard to explain, but they say, well, that's all uh, nonsense. You've got to come up with an alternative fuel. So, uh, we'll see. Uh, uh, Here's an article which uh, I kind of caught my attention because we discussed this. You know, David Crosby passed away and... um, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, um, a, few, a week or so ago. And both you and I were struck by the idea that there was so much coverage of his passing. Now, David Crosby, you and I are, are old enough, so I'll just say I was old enough, I'm old enough, to be there when uh, David Crosby came upon the scene. Crosby, Stills, Nash was on the scene, and the other groups yeah. he was with were on the scene. So I fully appreciate that he was a rock star. I don't have to read the newspaper to right. know about that. But but he's had coverage in like the New York Times right. as if he were right. a cultural icon. Right. I don't know. I mean, he wasn't that I, big a star. Yeah. <laughs> he just and you're going there and you're kind of shaking your head, going, "Am I missing something?" Because yeah, I mean, there's a rock star. Like so, so it's been on our minds. What what's the story? The story are, is are we missing something? It turns out here's what we're missing. And and and, and, and times, we're missing something. Yes, here's the headline: Crosby and Twitter fit hand in glove. It, apparently, uh, he was a Twitter pundit, according to the New York Times. In his uh, career on Twitter, he sent seventy nine thousand tweets. Seventy nine thousand. He had spent the last few years, the last ten or fifteen years, or however long Twitter's been around, writing tweets like crazy, and it gained him a fairly substantial following and kept him kept his name current. People were interested and people appreciated that apparently some tweets are done by services or agents or but this was really him. David Crosby was commenting and sharing uh what he liked in the world and what he didn't like. You know, he he didn't like certain performers. He liked other performers, as you'd expect. Um, uh, but he had his uh, followers. And uh, that kept his name alive. So much so that he managed to put out a few albums in his later years. But no one bought those albums. They weren't popular. Uh, and yet he had enough currency there. So, But that it, that's the answer. That's the answer. Right. That's what kept his name afloat or sufficiently current enough so that when time came that he passed, people said, oh, yeah, David Crosby. I know who David Crosby is. And, of course, we missed it because we're not on Twitter. And, well, but here's the thing. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking how uh, people like my father yeah. w- would have loved Twitter. 
Yes, that, but I that's a scary see, my thought. My father's the kind of guy who yeah. would just uh, have yeah. a comment about everything. Right. You know, and I could just, you know, not unlike uh, other people like Donald Trump, but, um, right. you know, you could see, you know, it's a good thing for an older guy to, to have, to just, yes. uh, you know, make his little, uh, make his asides and his opinions uh, known. So I can see an older guy like... Yeah. Uh, David Crosby doing that. Well, in fact, they say, you know, what did he tweet about? He tweeted about the fact that he didn't like Ted Nugent. He didn't like The Doors. Uh, his distaste for some performance he saw on Saturday Night Live. Uh, his distaste for poorly uh, rolled joints, marijuana joints. Right. So it's just a random... His distaste for Donald Trump. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so yeah. it's old man stuff. Uh, he had some positive things. He still uh, was a proponent of Joni Mitchell. Glad to hear that. Uh, but uh, yeah, but so, yeah, but it does solve. So it, it provides a forum. But it's two sides of it. One is it provides a forum, but the other hand is I think younger people when they they do they have a vague notion of who he was. They're reading about Twitter or whatever, and this might include the obituary writer, and they probably end up with an inflated view of who he was, which you don't get if you were actually alive when he was doing his thing. Then you actually know what he was. So it's a little weird. I think that can happen with uh, many celebrities, yeah. whether you're, you know, I, I, I'm sure yeah. we uh, exaggerate. Um, I'm sure we get totally confused about who was what 100 years Not ago me. or 50 years ago. Listen, listen this, this, uh, this has I mean, to explain the Lisa Marie Presley thing, which I still don't understand. Look at you and Sinatra. Well, Sinatra is nobody bigger than Sinatra, but uh, you can't dispute that. Uh all right, and finally, uh, here's a real obituary. Bill, Billy Packer died. And yeah, I'm not complaining. No one should remember Billy Packer uh, to any extreme amount. But if you were a basketball fan uh, during the heyday of the NCAA tournament, and I'm calling it the heyday, I think fairly when, when Larry Bird was playing against Magic Johnson and those kind of games, um, the analyst, uh, the guy doing much of the talking, was Billy Packer. Now, you'll remember perhaps even Al McGuire working with Billy Packer. And Al McGuire was a little bit goofy, and uh, Packer was the analyst, which was kind of straight talk. They broke up only because the, the rights were eventually sold to CBS. McGuire didn't work with CBS. Packer went and signed on with CBS, so he stayed with it. That That's the reason they were split. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he worked with uh, Jim Nance. But... Um, you know, what, what I appreciate about Packer, who, was, who frankly was the best analyst I've ever seen, uh, probably any sporting event, uh, here they describe him here as fast-talking, straightforward style um, with strong opinions. But he wasn't, as they say here, no shtick, unlike they mentioned Dick Vitale, just stuck the X and O's strategy with a health, healthy dose of opinion about a game he was watching in the state of college basketball. McGuire said, quote, the poor guy is so serious about basketball that he can't have any fun with it. It's all life and death. There's no in between with Billy. If it's on his mind, it jumps out of his mouth. But bless his heart, his mind is just as fast as his mouth. And that was true. I mean, the way he did it, he his, his philosophy was um, see it and say it. And uh, he's a smart guy. Uh, he was an excellent analyst, so he, he passed away recently. So, sad to see that. Uh, so, um, as a matter of fact, when Jim Nance was on that CBS show the other night, that's what he was, the other morning, that's what he was talking about in one of the football games, the passing of Billy Packer. Oh, that's how Nance got okay. started. Yeah, Here's a picture of him with Billy Packer, right there. Got it. 
All right. So that's all we have. And we have to go watch football now to yeah, see if, in fact, our picks are correct. Make some popcorn. Yes, that, that's, that's exactly right. All right. So this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With uh, Tamsin and Dan. Mostly Dan sometimes. Oh, sometimes. Reading the paper. See you next week. Yeah. See ya.